Chapter thirty one of the Silent House. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. The Silent House by Fergus Hume. Chapter thirty one A Strange Confession. I, Jabez Klein, write this confession in my prison cell, of my own free will, and without coercion from any one, partly because I know that the evidence concerning my share in the Vrain conspiracy is strong against me, and partly because I wish to exonerate my daughter Lydia. She is absolutely innocent of all knowledge concerning the feigned death of her husband, and his actual existence in a private lunatic asylum. And on the strength of this confession of mine, which will fix the guilt of the matter on the right persons, I demand that she shall be set free. It is not fair that she should suffer, for I and Ferrucci planned and carried out the whole conspiracy. Well, Ferrucci has punished himself, and soon the law will punish me, so it is only justice that Lydia should be discharged from all blame. On this understanding I set out the whole story of the affair, how it was thought of, how it was contrived, and how it was carried out. Now that Count Ferrucci is dead, this confession can harm no one but myself, and may be the means of setting Lydia free. So here I begin my recital. I was always an unlucky man, and the end of my life proves to be as unfortunate as the beginning. I was born in London some fifty and more years ago, in a Whitechapel slum, of drunken and profligate parents, so it is little to be wondered at that my career has been anything but virtuous or respectable. In my early childhood, if it may be called so, I was beaten and starved, set to beg, forced to thieve, and never had a kind word said to me or a kind deed done to me. No wonder I grew up a callous, hardened ruffian. As the twig is bent, so will the tree grow. Out of this depth of degradation I was rescued by a philanthropist, who had me fed and clothed and educated. I had at his hands every chance of leading a respectable life, but I did not want to become smug and honest. My early training was too strong for that. So after a year or two of enforced goodness I ran away to sea. The vessel I embarked on as a stowaway was bound for America. When I was discovered hiding among the cargo, we were in mid-ocean, and there was nothing for it but to carry me to the States. Still, to earn my passage, I was made cabin-boy to a ruffianly captain, and once more tasted the early delights of childhood, namely, kicks, curses, and starvation. When the ship arrived in New York, I was turned adrift in the city without a penny or a friend. It is not my purpose to describe my sufferings, as such description will do no good and interest nobody, particularly as the purpose of this confession is to declare the Vrain conspiracy and its failure. So I will pass over my early years as speedily as possible. To be brief, I became a newsboy, then a reporter. Afterwards I went west and tried my luck in San Francisco, later on in Texas. But in every case I failed and became poorer and more desperate than ever. In New Orleans I set up a newspaper, and had a brief time of prosperity, 
when I married the daughter of a hotel-keeper, and for the time was happy. Then the civil war broke out, and I was ruined. My wife died, leaving me with one child, whom I called Lydia after her. But that child died also, and I was left alone. After the war I prospered again for a time, and married a woman with money. She also died, and left a daughter. And this child I again called Lydia, in memory of my first wife, who was the only woman I ever truly loved. I placed little Lydia in a convent for education, and devoted my second wife's money to that purpose. Then I started out for the fifth or sixth time to make my fortune. Needless to say, I did not make it. I pass over a long period of distress and prosperity, hopes and fears. One day I was rich, the next poor. And fate, or whatever malignant deity looked after my poor affairs, knocked me about most cruelly, tossed me up, threw me down, and, at the end of a score of years, left me comparatively prosperous, with an income in English money of five hundred pounds a year. With this I returned to Washington to seek Lydia, and found her grown up into a beautiful and clever girl. Her beauty gave me the idea that I might marry her well in Europe as an American heiress. So for Europe we started, and after many years of travel about the continent, we settled down in the Pension Donizetti in Florence. There Lydia was admired for her beauty and wit, and courted for her money. But save for my ten pounds a week, which we eked out in the most frugal manner, we had not a penny between us. It was in Florence that we met with Vrain and his daughter, who came to stay at the pension. He was a quiet, harmless old gentleman, a trifle weak in the head, which his daughter said came from overstudy, but which I discovered afterwards was due to habitual indulgence in morphia and other drugs. His daughter watched him closely, and, not having a will of his own by reason of his weak brain, he submitted passively to her guidance. I heard by a side wind that Vrain was rich, and had a splendid mansion in the country. So I hinted to Lydia that as it seemed difficult to get her a young husband, it would be better for her to marry a rich old one. At that time Lydia was in love with, and almost engaged to, Count Ercole Ferrucci, a penniless Italian nobleman, who courted my pretty girl less for her beauty than for her supposed wealth. When I suggested that Lydia should marry Vrain, she refused at first to entertain the idea. But afterwards, seeing that the man was old and weak, she thought it would be a good thing as his wife to inherit his money, and then, as his widow, to marry Ferrucci. I think also that the pointed dislike which Diana Vrain manifested for us both, although I'm bound to say she hated Lydia more than she did me, had a great deal to do with my daughter marrying Vrain. However, the end of it was that Lydia broke off her engagement with Ferrucci, and very mad he was at losing her, and married Mark Vrain in Florence. After the marriage, the old man, who at that time was quite infatuated with Lydia, made a will leaving her his assurance money of twenty thousand pounds, but the house near Bath and the land he left to Diana. I am bound to say that Lydia behaved very well in this matter as she could have had all the money and land, but she was content with the assurance money, and did not rob Diana Vrain of her birthright. 
yet Diana hated her, and still hates her. But I ask anyone who reads this confession if my dear Liddy is not the better woman of the two. Who dares to say that such a sweet girl is guilty of the crimes she is charged with? Well, the marriage took place, and we all journeyed home to Berwin Manor. But here things went from bad to worse. Old Rain took again to his morphia, and nothing could restrain him. Then Lydia and Diana fought constantly, and each wished the other out of the house. I tried to keep the peace, and blamed Liddy, who is no saint, I admit, for the way in which she was treating Diana. With Miss Vrain I got on very well, and tried to make things easy for her, but in the end the ill-will between her and my Lydia became so strong that Diana left the house and went out to Australia to live with some relatives. So Lydia and I and old Vrain were left alone, and I thought that everything would be right. So it would have been if Lydia had not put matters wrong again by inviting Ferrucci over to stay. But she would insist upon doing so, and although I begged and prayed and commanded her not to have so dangerous a man in the house, she held her own, and in the face of my remonstrances and those of her husband, Count Ferrucci came to stay with us. From the moment he entered the house there was nothing but trouble. Vrain became jealous, and mad with drugs he took, often treated Lydia with cruelty and violence, and she came to me for protection. I spoke to Vrain, and he insulted me, wishing to turn me out of the house. But for Lydia's sake I remained. Then a Miss Tyler came to stay, and falling in love with Count Ferrucci, grew jealous of Lydia, and made trouble with Vrain. The end of it was that after a succession of scenes in which the old man behaved like the lunatic he was, he left the house, and not one of us knew where he went to. That was the last Lydia saw of her husband. After that trouble, I insisted that Count Ferrucci should leave the house, also Miss Tyler. They both did, but came back at times to pay Lydia a visit. We tried to find Vrain, but could not, as he had vanished altogether. Ferrucci, I saw, was in love with Lydia, and she with him. But neither the one nor the other hinted at a future marriage should Vrain die. I do not say that Lydia was a fond wife to Vrain, but he treated her so badly that he could not expect her to be. And I dare say I am the one to blame all through, as I made Lydia marry Vrain when she loved Ferrucci. But I did it all for the best, so as to get money for my dear girl. And if it has turned out for the worst, my inordinate affection for my child is to blame. All I have done has been for Lydia's sake. All Ferrucci did was for Lydia's sake, as he truly loved her. But I swear by all that I hold most holy, that Lydia knew not how either of us was working to secure her happiness. Well, Ferrucci is dead, and I am in jail. So we have paid in full for our wickedness. I had no idea of getting rid of Vrain until one day Ferrucci took me aside and told me that he had found Vrain at Salisbury. He stated that the man was still taking morphia, but in spite of his excesses had so strong a constitution that it appeared he would live for many years. The Count then said that he loved Lydia dearer than life and wished to marry her if Vrain could be got out of the way. 
I cried out against murder being done, as I never entertained such an idea for a moment. But Ferrucci denied that he wished to harm the man. He wanted him put away in a lunatic asylum. And when I asked him how even then he could marry Lydia, he suggested his scheme of substituting a sickly and dying man for Vrain. The scheme, which was entirely invented by the Count, was as follows. Ferrucci said that in a minor London theatre he had seen an actor called Clear, who was wonderfully like Vrain, save that he had no scar on the cheek and had a moustache, whereas Vrain was always clean-shaved. He had made the acquaintance of the actor, Michael Clear was his full name, and of his wife. They proved to be hard up and mercenary, so Ferrucci had no difficulty in gaining over both for his purpose. For a certain sum of money, which was to be paid to Mrs. Clear when her husband was dead, and the Count married to Lydia, was possessed of the assurance money, Clear agreed to shave off his moustache and personate Vrain. Ferrucci, who was something of a chemist, created by means of some acid a scar on Clear's cheek, like that on Vrain's, so that he resembled my son-in-law in every way, save that he had lost one little finger. Ferrucci wanted me to join him in the conspiracy, so that I could watch Clear impersonating Vrain, while he himself kept his eye on the real Vrain, who was to be received into Mrs. Clear's house at Bayswater, and passed off as her husband. All Mrs. Clear wanted was the money, as, long since wearied of her drunken husband, she did not care if he lived or died. Clear, on his part, knowing that he could not live long, was quite willing to play the part of Rain, on condition that he had plenty to eat and drink, and could live in idleness and luxury. His wishes in this direction cost us a pretty penny, as he bought everything of the best. To this plot I refused consent until I saw how Rain was. So when Ferrucci brought him from Salisbury, where he was hiding, to London, I had an interview with him. He proved to be so stupefied with drugs that he hardly knew me. So, seeing that my Lydia would get no good out of her life by being tied to such a husband, I determined that I would assist Ferrucci, on the understanding, of course, that Vrain was to be well looked after in every way. We agreed that when Clear died, and his body was identified as Vrain's, that the real man should be put in an asylum, which was, and I am sure every one will agree with me, the best place for him. All this being arranged, I went out to look for a house in a secluded part of town, in which Clear, under the name of Berwin, should live until he died as Vrain. I did not wish to see about the house in my new character, lest I should be recognized, if there was any trouble over the assurance money. To complicate matters, I determined to disguise myself as the real Vrain. Of course, Clear personated Vrain as Lydia had last seen him, that is, clean-shaven and neat in his dress. But the real Vrain, neglecting his personal appearance, had cultivated a long white beard, and wore a black velvet skull-cap to conceal a baldness which had come upon him. I disguised myself in this fashion, therefore, and went to Pimlico under the name of Rent. End of chapter 31